Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and I am pumped. We have two, count them, two nights of presidential debates this week. The Democrats are going out at Miami. Ten candidates on Wednesday, ten candidates on Thursday, and today we're going to break it all down for you with the Chronicle's political team, the whole Chronicle Political Mishbuka is here, and we're going to break it down. John Wildermuth, Tal Copen, Alexei Kosev, we're going to be talking about what, what's going to go happen to Joe Biden. Is it going to be a beatdown on Biden? What's Bernie Sanders going to, going to be like with like nine people on stage instead of just one? What about Elizabeth Warren? Is she going to prosper from being the alpha candidate? And what about California's Kamala Harris and Eric Swalwell? What's their in on this debate going to be? Breaking down the debates next on It's All Political. All right, well, we have a a debate here coming up this week. Two debates, not one, but two debates. And here to break it down for you is the Chronicle's political team. In Washington, D.C., the the Chronicle's D.C. correspondent, Tal Copen. Tal, say hello. Hello from D.C. All right. From Sacramento, the Chronicle's Sacramento Bureau correspondent, Alexi Kosev. Alexi, say hello to the audience. Good morning, San Francisco. <laughs> and here in San Francisco is the big man, John Wildermuth. Good morning. All right. So now that we've all uh, said our hellos, this are, are we pumped? I'm pumped. This is like uh, political nerd out time. This is going to be two nights, Wednesday and Thursday night, two hours long, two debates, 10 people each. And let's start by stipulating that when you have 10 people debating, it is not a debate. It is speed dating. Um, Tal, how should we, uh, as viewers, as voters, think about what we're going to be watching for four hours this week? Yeah, I mean, as you point out, you know, most campaigns are sort of going into this expecting that they're going to get five, maybe 10 minutes uh, of the debate time to their candidate if they're lucky, which, you know, there's a couple ways to approach this. You can try to sort of go big and and somehow use that moment to sort of make a big splash. But that, of course, carries risk of, you know, potentially stepping in it. Or you can try to sort of be more of sort of introductory of yourself and give viewers a chance to just get to know you for the first time, knowing that there are going to be more debates. So I think you're going to probably see a little bit of a mix of the two of those approaches. But I mean, it's going to be very hard for any one of them to get, you know, sort of traction or momentum. Alexi, if you are a front runner, a Joe Biden, a Bernie Sanders, what are you looking to do in this debate? Yeah, now's the time to sort of play it safe and come out there greatest hits and you know give give the people what they want and just sort of show why they already like you and why they already support you and um you're going to be out there on that stage for months and months to come because you have the polling and the support to keep you know sticking around these many future debates that are lined up. So this is, you know, this is not a make or break moment. And I think the pressure is really off for those folks. And big man, if you are a one percenter and we don't need a a financial one percenter, we mean a one percent in the polls, existential, uh, 
your, your candidacy is having an existential moment. What are you going to be trying to do in this? Well, the first thing you have to remember is of the 20 candidates out there, only seven of them are polling above 1%. Uh, so what do you do? You, you just say, here I am. And if you have one big idea, you just got to hit it all the time and hope that that convinces people. Well, just and keep in mind, you know, this is a particularly difficult debate for these candidates to prepare for, because if you're only going to get one, maybe two questions to hit out of the park, you don't know what that question's going to be. And so, you know, we talk about sort of sticking to your talking points. But at the same time, you know, if you're someone like Andrew Yang, for example, who's pretty much made this entire campaign about universal basic income, and the question that ends up coming to you is about foreign policy, you know, you have to be prepared to handle that, not to mention the fact that you've got 10 candidates on that stage that you didn't even know who they were going to be until about a week ago. So, you know, prepping for this, you have so many variables. It's, it's particularly tough for a campaign. But remember, you know, the rule of politics is answer the question you want, not the question you're asked. If Andrew Yang is asked about foreign policy, you say, that's really important. And the best way to, to improve America's security is by, a, a, by an income like that. So, I mean, again, you're going to see a lot of guys just really cranking their bodies to turn it to questions to the way they want to answer them. If you, uh, for our viewing tip, if there is one night to watch, I think we would all be in agreement. I will assume this that Thursday night is the night to watch. For if you're a soccer fan, this would be the group of death. And we call it that because <laughs> there's an overload of poll leaders that could destroy each other here, including uh, the former vice president, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, along with the top tier challengers, uh, Senator Kamala Harris, and Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Um, so just just to give you the full lineup, as you will see it on your screen of choice, from left to right, uh, self-help author Marianne Williamson, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, uh, tech entrepreneur Andrew Yang, Buttigieg, Biden, Sanders, Harris, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, and our very own Congressman Eric Swalwell of Dublin, California. So... Tom, do, do the people, do they rip on Biden? And if they do, how does he respond? This is going to be one of the sort of risk reward calculations that I think is going to be really difficult for campaigns because he's clearly the front runner. The obvious, you know, sort of choice coming into this would be that you need to take him down a peg. At the same time, he remains exceedingly popular. He would probably love to play into, you know, the sort of gang up on him mentality. So in some ways, going after him kind of carries a big risk. And you wonder if maybe there's a, a lower tier candidate that sort of has nothing to lose who might do more of this, where the upper tier candidates kind of pull back a little bit at the same time. I think the way you'll see the candidates go after Biden is they're really going to try to make these substance disagreements as opposed to personality disagreements. So you'll see some sort of cloaked shots at each other because they don't want to look like they're making this campaign nasty and they don't want to turn this into a bloodbath, but they want to try to draw distinctions. And so I think that's where you're going to sort of see them try to walk the tightrope to land a blow without, you know, taking this to a negative and thus potentially risky place. A rule in debates, especially this early, this much before a primary, is first do no harm. What you got to do is make sure that people are looking 
at ways to eliminate some of their choices. So you don't want to give anybody watching a reason to say, I'm, I hate this guy. I'm not even going to think about him anymore. And I think that's what all the candidates are going to be out there trying to do is not mess themselves up. What about the danger of, you know, this big crowded field like we saw in the 2016 Republican contest, and they all seem to hold their fire on Trump and tried to take each other out so that they could be the last one left standing to take him on one-on-one -on -one and defeat him in the, you know, for the Republican nomination. And then in the end, he won anyway. I mean, there's a risk that if they all hold their fire on Biden for too long, that he'll just keep cruising along as the front runner all the way to the nomination, right? I think you're going to see a split here where, you know, you talked about the the candidates above 1% and the candidates below 1%. You know, you're going to probably have John Delaney wanting to go after Bernie Sanders, right? As we've already seen, like you have some of these lower tier candidates who want to go after, you know, whatever seems like an advantage to them. So the moderates are going to go after the progressives, the more progressive lower tier candidates might go after the moderates. And so you're going to have these weird side dynamics. And, and you're right, uh, Alexi, to, to sort of say like there may be, I mean, I don't know how much Everyone sort of remembers the 2016 cycle, but it was Chris Christie that kind of demolished Marco Rubio in the end. And then Christie dropped out shortly later. But he was the one that sort of pointed out that Rubio was repeating the same answer over and over. And it was sort of called a, a kamikaze mission in some regards. You know, in some ways, Biden has less to worry about than perhaps some of these other candidates who have to worry about incoming from a candidate just desperate to up their you know awareness level a little bit. I'm I'm fascinated to see how much John Hickenlooper goes after Bernie Sanders, especially after, you know, his whole attempt at a star making moment when he was here in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago for the for the yeah. Democratic convention. Remind everybody what happened. Uh, like, so you were in the room when uh, when Hickenlooper uh, well, to, to explain what he said. To the California yeah, Democratic so Party he today. had his, you know, f a couple minutes to get up on stage in front of the very liberal activists of the California Democratic Party. And his decision was to go after social socialism, which, of course, did not go over well. And then he doubled down on that and then he fundraised off it. And, you know, I think he's hoping to ride that to some sort of connection with the moderate voters elsewhere in the country. Yeah, and Hickenlooper is one of the one percenters. Speaking of uh, Senator Sanders, uh, 2016, on the Democratic side, he was, for the most part, alone on stage with Hillary Clinton. Um, and not only was he alone on stage, uh, or not, not only now does he have physical company on the stage, he has uh, many other people sharing his policy positions that he held to himself in 2016, Medicare for all, uh, tuition breaks of some sort. Uh, big man, how will Bernie adapt to the new world order? What does he have to do? I think that one thing he has to do is make sure he doesn't scare people out there. I mean, I don't think you're going to see him coming out and say, let's discuss democratic socialism and why it's a good thing for the country. Again, you don't want to say you want to appear presidential, whatever. Said, I'm here's what I want to do. I want to do certain things and it's going to be hard to do it. But I can be the president, I can run the country, and he has to portray himself as not some, you know, left-wing, you know, arm-waving arm bomb thrower, but as somebody who can legitimately be the president and run the, the premier country in the, in the world.
We also have three on night one, or I'm sorry, on Thursday night, we will have three Californians on stage, Marianne Williamson, uh, Eric Swalwell, and Kamala Harris. I dare say that Kamala Harris may be in the best position uh, or of anyone in the debates. She's high enough in the polls that she's not desperate to toss a grenade in, uh, into, the, into the group. Uh, but she's not so high enough that people would be taking shots at her. But still, she's she's kind of flatlining in the polls. Does she go full prosecutor? Uh, Lexi, I want to go to you first. You have seen um, uh, Kamala Harris debate in the past. Not not the greatest bit debater, but what do we expect from her? You know, that that's very true. I mean, I, I've seen her debate for running for California attorney general and for U.S. senator and never found her to be that impressive. But over the intervening years, I've watched her become a quite formidable and impressive um, sort of candidate on the campaign trail, like her stump speeches and her energy and the way she can whip up the crowd in that setting has has really reached another level. So I'll be watching to see if she can translate that to this more staid setting. And um, as you mentioned, her polling is flatlined a little bit, but she main, remains in that top four or five it, pretty much everywhere in the country. So she'll probably be looking for one or two breakout moments where she gets in a good line or you know, just just has that moment that can capture the people who've expressed interest in her, but maybe haven't put her at their top, you know, choice yet because they don't know her that well or she just hasn't, you know, stepped above and beyond so far. And Tal, what is what is the, the Harris camp? What do they want out of this thing? How are they feeling going in? You are you are uh, your your ears in that huddle. Yeah, I actually I spoke with the campaign a little bit. I mean, they see this as sort of an introduction opportunity, you know, as much as we've been plugged in and following this race for what feels like, I don't know, years at this point already. You know, the name recognition is still pretty low for most of the candidates who aren't Biden and Bernie. And so, you know, this is really an opportunity to kind of come out there. Now, on the one hand, you know, I think Harris has demonstrated in congressional hearings and various moments on the campaign trail that she's she's pretty good sometimes at, at get landing a one-liner or being really pithy and concise and really sharp and not, you know, seeming to feel pressure a lot. At the same time, you know, this those moments in those congressional hearings with Trump officials have really been her biggest star making moments and the moments where voters I've talked to voters out on the campaign trail who say how much they really started to follow her after that sort of, you know, after questioning Jeff Sessions or, you know, whoever was in front of her. This debate stage isn't like that. The other candidates aren't as clear of sort of an enemy. She doesn't get to question them. So in some ways, I wonder if the pressure is a little bit higher on her because people are expecting her to be so sharp. And this setting is just not the same as voters are used to seeing her in. Right. And plus, she's, she'd be shooting at her own. It's not, she's not shooting at a Trump administration right. official. Right. She's a, at a fellow Democrat. Big man, you were going to say. It's going to be interesting to see which Kamala Harris shows up. Is it going to be the prosecutor, the one that we saw when she was running for California Attorney General and even for Senate? Or is it going to be the more progressive uh, candidate that she's tried to push herself as early on? Now, it's good to be progressive in front of uh, 
California voters or even in front of, especially in front of a California uh, Democratic convention. But how well does that hold on nationally on a national stage like the one this week? We uh, we are contractually obli- obligated to mention our our local uh, presidential candidate, our uh, second <laughs> East Bay Congressman Eric Swalwell. We love Eric, but uh, he, in this very studio in April, when we asked him if he was going to give up his congressional seat to run for president, he said yes, and then he name checked the Spanish conquistador Cortez, and he said, "Burn the lifeboats," but then. He kind of backed that up. And then, Tal, when you talked to him last week, what what the hell's going on with Swalwell? You know, I mean, he, he was kind of being coy all along. I mean, I remember when he was launching his campaign, I asked him, you know, so you're only going to run for president? He said, I am running for president. So, you know, it was always this this sort of present tense version of that. But the reality is, and he knows this, that he has until December to file, you know, the paperwork to go for his congressional seat and hold on to it. And he said that as long as he feels like he still has a fighting chance in this presidential campaign, which means making the debate stage, which he has to this point, that he, you know, will keep running for president. But he acknowledged if he feels like he's not in it anymore, which could include getting cut from the debate stage when the criteria becomes a more difficult in September or even for the debate in July, if we have more than 20 candidates qualify, someone on the bubble might get left off. So, you know, then he says he'll reassess and he might go back to his job. And, you know, in the meantime, there is a candidate that is running for his seat. He may not just be able to cakewalk back into it. We will see. Uh, But yeah. And, you know, I mean, for him, this debate stage is really about trying to catch any sort of, you know, traction and maybe move up from one to two. 2% in the polls or something uh, just to be able to sort of maintain and hopefully make the debate stage in September. He's in the same situation that a lot of these low-rung candidates are. Pretty soon, they're going to have to make a decision. I mean, if you stay at 1% or 2%, how reasonable is it to even think that, you know, you can keep raising money for one hand or even have a shot at... uh, making it through the early yeah. primaries. The decision is often made for you. When the money dries up, your your campaign dries up. It's notable that one of the candidates who had announced for Swalwell's seat, uh, Senator Bob Wachowski, who's in the state Senate here in Sacramento, has already dropped his bid and switched over to run for a county supervisor seat. Uh, so if that gives you an idea of uh, perhaps some of the field clearing its way for Swalwell to come back into that race, then, you know, that that may give you an idea of where things are headed for him. Yeah. And, and you know, it, there's a bit of a historical corollary here where Marco Rubio, after he dropped out of the presidential race, he had said he was not going to run for reelection um, in the Senate and was persuaded to get back in and the field cleared for him. So, you know, we'll see. All right. Can we can we get to Wednesday night? I know this is the lesser night. Let's move to Wednesday night. It's uh, Elizabeth Warren is the uh, is the alpha candidate here. But let's read who will from from left to right on your on your screen of choice. It will be New York Mayor Bill de Blasio, um, Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan, former Housing Secretary Julian Castro, uh, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, uh, Senator Warren, uh Beto O'Rourke, former Texas congressman, Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, 
Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, uh, Washington Governor Jay Inslee, and former Maryland Congressman John Delaney. Is it, Tal, is it a good thing or a bad thing for Warren to be ostensibly the lone top-tier candidate here? Well, I'm kind of, you know, of the opinion that there's no good or bad thing in either of these debate lineups, right? It's all going to be about what the candidates make of it. Uh, you know, it certainly presents an opportunity for her to just completely stand out from the pack. I mean, we've already seen she has some very organic momentum in the polls. Voters really like her heavy policy, I have a plan for that, you know, campaign mantra. And this setting is actually really well attuned to that because she doesn't have to go after anyone else. All she does is have to keep drumming her policies. At the same time, you know, in the absence of being able to draw a real sharp contrast with some of the front runners and and having to deal with some backbenchers that may that, you know, she's the only real top tier candidate on stage that they can go after. I mean, it introduces another element. And the question is, how many people will even tune in for this debate, as Joe has already endorsed only watching Thursday night, apparently. <laughs> so, you know, again, again, all of this is a, is a risk reward one. proposition. Um. Alexi, you spent some time with uh, watching Beto O'Rourke when he was in California for the convention. He came out of the um, he came out of the gate on you know a high you know as the new it candidate. He has tanked since. Um, he's trying to you know get the the magic back. I was talking with somebody about that, and and they're like, you know, the debate might not be the best place for him to get the magic back because he needs to be, you know solo in front of the audience and putting him in a suit and tie with nine other people is not the best thing. But do you think what what can he do to get the get the Beto mojo back for what it's worth? I you know, I think if he'd figured that out, he may have had it by now. But <laughs> I think probably one of the biggest criticisms of his campaign so far is a lack of substance and and whether or not that's true, he has rolled out certain plans. There's a feeling that he's not really running on ideas, he's running on his personality. So perhaps one thing would be to try and come out there and show that he's really got an agenda. That, that he wants to run on. Um, the other thing would be that, you know, his star-making moment nationally when he was running for Senate in Texas last year was this videoed exchange he had with a town hall meeting about um, the football players kneeling during the national anthem in the NFL. And he sort of had this very emotional, almost almost like a sermon um and that kind of went viral online. A lot of young people really related to that. So maybe he he taps into that sort of thoughtful speechifying again and is able to come away with a moment like that that people can latch on to. This is a huge night for a pair of senators, uh, Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar. And uh, just as a reminder, uh, the local connection on uh, Cory Booker, former Stanford football player. Klobuchar is at 1%. And Booker's at 2%. And they are very, very much in danger of falling off the map if they don't do something or, you know, get some traction on this. So they're looking for this debate and certainly the one that follows, I believe, what, next month? Or in yes. all, next month? They got to get something and they got to make a move from where they are or they're going to become irrelevant. We also, uh, I think, uh, Tal uh, and others have touched on this earlier, but we have a couple of sort of one issue candidates here. 
um, if you will. Uh, Jay Inslee uh, on climate change, Andrew Yang on universal basic income, Swalwell has uh, hooked a lot of his candidacy onto guns. Um, what do they? What do they do? Do they do they try and steer every question into their into their wheelhouse or or what? And I, I've I've heard both on this. I say, in a, in a mass cattle call like this, having one issue to remember you by could be a good thing because you go, oh, Inslee, that's the climate change guy, or Yang, that's the guy who wants to give everybody a thousand bucks. What What do you guys think about that? It depends on whether you're running to win or you're running to try and steer the conversation which is something I haven't quite figured out yet about Jay Inslee, say, you know, is he really trying to be the next president or is he trying to make sure that climate change, which was an issue that went pretty ignored in 2016, actually has a say? So if it's the latter, then just, you know, you stick to your talking point and you make sure that that is a central part of the conversation and perhaps you hook into a a very invested part of the Democratic Party that will keep you afloat for a couple more months. So I think this is where, you know, the the question mark of the moderators really comes into play here because, you know, you're going to have five different moderators from NBC over these two nights. They may say, you know what, this is the first debate. Let's really try to get the candidates talking on issues they're comfortable with. Maybe they just give Andrew Yang a UBI question or Jay Inslee a climate change question Or maybe they say, you know what, let's try to break the mold. Let's try to do something really interesting. And they try to give the candidates really unexpected questions or put them on their toes. And we'll see how much the other candidates are allowed to sort of interact in a way that starts to get, you know, responses going. So, you know, as I mentioned before, I mean, it's really hard to prepare for, but, you know, and, and, I should say the Yang gang on Twitter insists that he has plenty more policies than this. And, you know, we just aren't paying attention to them. We'll see. But, you know, there there is an element of this debate is going to really reward the people who are skillful on their toes. And yes, as John mentioned, you answer the question you want to answer. But how effective is it going to be to take a question on Iran and talk about you know, how much Americans are earning in their paychecks. Is that going to be something that voters really respond to? Or they are are they going to want to see someone pass the commander in chief test in that moment? So, you know, this sort of unpredictability is part of what makes these debates really potentially very interesting. All right. Our last question. Who is your surprise breakout candidate of the nights? Your prediction. Who is someone we will be talking about the next day that you were like, we probably weren't thinking about. I'll just say that when I when I back in San Francisco at the Democratic Convention, when I went to the Move On Forum, which was a you know progressive group forum with eight different candidates, uh, talking to voters afterwards, some of them were really surprised by Cory Booker and and Julian Castro. Um, both of them, I think, outperformed the expectations for them. Now, will they break out star? I don't know. They're still going to be against all the other candidates. Uh, but, you know, those two have not gotten a ton of, of oxygen on the campaign trail, and they do have the potential to um, be very impressive in their rhetoric. So I guess, you know, keep an eye on those two in addition to sort of the usual suspects above, you know, the above one percenters. That's probably my inclination as well is, is Cory Booker. Uh, he He's a very stirring speaker, and a debate stage is not necessarily the best forum for that. But as we've said, it seems like a clearer field on night one for him to kind of take the reins and and really 
just show what he's got as a force of personality uh, more than anything. And if if there's not as intense of a of a kind of inner candidate battle going on on that first night, then maybe there's some room for him to to break through the noise a little bit more. I'm going to go uh, down the track a little bit and uh, <laughs> say John Hickenlooper. Oh. Uh, Hickenlooper has positioned himself as what he calls a pragmatic progressive. He's got a very good record of accomplishments, both as mayor of Denver and as governor of Colorado. And he can come out, and I expect he will come out and say what he said is, we cannot win talking about socialism. We can win talking about important things that need to be done and somebody who can actually get that stuff done, which I've shown I can do. All right. Four hours of debate viewing uh, awaits us. What about you, you Joe? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I was uh, trying to weasel out of that. I was, um, I- I'm torn between a couple of different people. I think Booker, uh, only because of what you guys said, but also his his personality is like through the screen. And I think that's something, especially a night one, that can that can come out. Um, but I'm also going to throw in a little love for Amy Klobuchar. Um, I think with a lot of the different personalities, I think she has a uh, she the, she might capture that you know that kind of uh, Midwestern. Okay, let's all for people who are looking for the all right someone who can kind of get along. She works. She wants. She talks about working across the aisle. She does nod to progressive positions, not too much on uh, Medicare for all, not too much on this. She's kind of uh, centrist with a little, but but talks a good progressive game. So she might, I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm throwing darts here because I really have no idea. Um, Let's just hope she has some new jokes. Oh, please. Yeah, she's like. <laughs> but she's, the, most uh, voters haven't heard them yet, so. That's true. We've heard them, but uh, this will be the, their their breakout uh, stuff. Okay, guys, thank you so much. We uh, happy viewing. We'll all be uh, communicating. Uh, there will be a live chat on Slack. People can uh, listen to our ids go off on the as we watch the debates. <laughs> we will be commenting on them uh, on sfchronicle.com. So check out that feed, and then we will reconvene here on Friday morning to. Uh, to try and make sense of uh, what we all just saw. Thank you. Wow. I am, I'm even more pumped after that podcast. I'm so psyched for this. Thank you, Alexi Kosev. Thank you, Tal Copen. Thank you, John Wildermuth. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Libby Coleman, for producing today's podcast. And remember, whether you can name all 20 Democratic candidates or not, it's all political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.